Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. I started this podcast a couple years ago because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. And today, I'm really thrilled to bring you my conversation with scientist and author Professor Michael Mann. Professor Mann is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science and the director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State. He has also recently been inducted into the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which we talk about a bit on the show. In the late 90s, Michael was pulled into the world of climate politics and policy when a paper of his caused a big stir. As the lead author of a paper produced in 1998, uh, Mann used advanced statistical techniques to find regional variations in a climate reconstruction covering the past 600 years. And 1999, the same team, that is Michael Mann, Raymond Bradley, Malcolm Hughes, that team used these same techniques to produce a reconstruction over the past 1,000 years, which was dubbed the hockey stick graph because of its shape. And that graph suggested that the uh, temperature variations in recent decades have uh, been much more rapid than, uh, than the observed kind of variability over the past 1,000 years. Professor Mann was one of the eight lead authors of the Observed Climate Variability and Change chapter of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, the third IPCC assessment that was published back in 2001. And a graph from that paper, from the hockey stick paper, was highlighted in several parts of the report, and it was given a lot of publicity. The IPCC acknowledged that his work, along with that of many other authors and review editors, they contributed to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, which was won jointly by the IPC, IPCC, excuse me, and Al Gore. So here's the, the thing, the interesting thing. Although at the time, climate uh, denialists, climate skeptics, sometimes acted as if the hockey stick graph is like the foundation of modern climate science. And while it's an important piece of evidence, it is not the foundation of modern climate science. Uh, modern climate science is based in really fundamental essential physics that has been established since the time of the U.S. Civil War, if you're in the States, or the Victorian era, if you're in the U.K. That hockey stick graph is just one more piece of evidence on top of that mountain range, a mountain range, a full mountain range of evidence that climate change is happening, climate change is caused by humans, and it's serious. So as part of getting pulled into the kind of public arena, uh, Michael has written several books. He's written uh, dire Predictions, Understanding Global Warming. He's written about the hockey stick and the climate wars, a book on that. He's written The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. That's in 2016. And there's also one called The Tantrum That Saved the World that came out in 2018. The book that we talk about in this interview, it's uh, coming out in January, in uh, next year, obviously. It's called The New Climate War, and we talk about the kind of main themes of that book and a little bit about the process that he's been through writing that. Professor Mann is also co-founder and contributor to the climatology blog Real Climate, and the purpose of that website 
is to provide a site for commentaries by working climate scientists for interested public members and journalists. That is a site where you can go and you can get good information that's connected to the peer-reviewed literature. So after repeated attacks against his and his colleagues' academic work and being, in his words, uh, hounded by elected officials, threatened with violence and more, Michael Mann decided to enter the fray and speak out about the very real implications of his research and the research of the broader field. So at some point, and we talk about this some on the show, he made the specific choice to really get into that arena, into that political arena, which is not an easy choice. I mean, it comes with personal costs, energy costs, emotional energy costs. Um, It comes with a, a big burden, and he was willing to shoulder that burden. So more power to him, certainly, for being willing to take that on. So during this conversation, like I said, we talked about his upcoming book, The New Climate War, due out in January. We talk about the culture around scientists, public engagement, and political engagement, and how that culture has changed over the past decade or so. And we talk about, uh, as a scientist, how the heck do you use a platform like Twitter in a responsible fashion? It can be a big weapon, so you need to really understand how to use it. When I say weapon, I mean it's a big tool. It's a big, powerful tool. We only had about 45 minutes to talk, so that means that this episode is a little bit faster paced than usual, but not that much faster. To find Professor Mann on Twitter, you can find him at Michael E. Mann or via his website, michaelmann.net. So a big thank you to Professor Mann for taking some time out, for offering your insight. I really enjoyed this chat and hope that all of you enjoy it as much as I did. So yes, that's enough from me. I think that's everything that I needed to say up top here. Let's get into this conversation with Professor Michael Mann. Here we go. Hello. Hello. Hi, uh, Dan. Hi, Mike. Can you hear me okay? I-, I can. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad you're here. Uh, no, ha- happy to do it. Thanks. Uh, you're you're on the West Coast, is that right? No, I'm out at the British Antarctic Survey. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Of course. <laughs> that was the reason for the, yeah, we had to work out the timing on that. Yep, got yeah, it. The uh, five-hour difference. Yeah, yeah, I moved out here about seven years ago, coming up on that. So, it's uh, yeah, I've been, been here a while, and I seem to be somewhat settling down as much as we can, as much as an mm-hmm. academic person can <laughs> and settle sure. down. Sure. So, where where are you? The weather looks pretty nice there at the moment. Uh, yeah, I'm here in in Pennsylvania. Uh, we are, you know, uh, sort of um, still doing our best to uh, social uh, distance, and so pretty much staying in in my home uh, uh, to the extent possible. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Of course, we're still under this slowly easing kind of lockdown in the UK. Yeah. You know, every yeah. couple of weeks, two to three weeks, they'll kind of slowly some of the restrictions a little bit and then there'll be a period where everyone tries to figure out the implications of that and what that means. And yeah. And it's sort of of where we are at this point. Yeah. Yeah. They're planning to send kids back to school in September. So that, yeah, that's, and that would change the dynamic quite a lot uh, because 
Yeah, I, th- I think you have a kid, right? I think I read somewhere. In one yeah, our daughter is 14 years old, so she'll be, and, and she's certainly missed out on seeing her friends and is looking forward to that. But as you note, um, that, that's a whole nother uh, sort of can of worms that we open when, once we do that. And Penn State students are going to be coming back in the fall as well. And is currently... Like, physically, uh, they'll be physically there in the, in the room. <laughs> Yeah, and, and right now uh, we're, we're still trying to sort of figure out how that's going to work for faculty, what combination of in-person and remote teaching we're going to use. And uh, so, yeah it's, yeah, it's all in the mix. Is this the start of every interview you do these days? Is this a particular oh. conversation about... No, no, we're this one, although, you know, it's the obvious thing that I guess is on everybody's minds. So it's yeah. a natural way to start a conversation, I suppose. Yeah. It is, right? Yeah, because it's just, it is bizarre. And I know people say it's bizarre a lot, but that's because it's true. It is actually a bizarre thing <laughs> yeah. that we're trying to adjust, adjust to. Um, but all the publishing stuff with your book, that's, is that still rolling ahead? Yeah, without, you know? Full speed ahead on all that stuff, research and, and, uh, and, and writing. So yeah, in fact, to some extent, I don't want to say it was a blessing because the pandemic obviously was a, uh, was was a, a tragic um, you know development, but uh, but it did actually give me time to sort of finish writing my book uh, this this spring uh, when pretty much everything else got canceled. I had this block of time, and I was able to to get get it done ahead of dead uh, you know the, the deadline, which was nice because it's allowed us to move it up a little bit. Um, originally, it was going to come out next summer. My feeling was that, that that would be really late given mm. sort of the events that I comment on. And so now it's going to come out in early January, which is a much better time for it. Right. And that's the new climate war. The that's the title climate. of it. Yep. Yeah. And we I can, think. yeah, I, I don't want to eat up your, uh, the, your questions that, you, you know, we, we, we can obviously go, go on record with uh, a lot of this. Yeah. Sure. Well, why don't we start with that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I like to keep, these as conversational kind of as I can. Yeah. So I, I don't have like a bunch of specific things to march us through. It's more of, no a, more of a chat. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. So when did you start writing this? Yeah. Um, I guess I started writing the book now um, almost a year ago. Hmm. Uh, and it's sort of, a, you know, writing, or at least for me, is is a very creative process. Um, and I can't just decide I'm going to write my next book mm-hmm. and write it. I have to feel like there's something that I want to say. Uh, and it's something that I want to say that can't be expressed in a commentary or an op-ed. Um, and it sort of, you know, some the way it works for me is usually after a while that that'll happen. I'll feel like, you know, I, I need to, <laughs> I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this at length. And so that's ultimately what led to uh, me writing this book. My, my last project was a, a children's book uh, that I co-authored with Megan Herbert, who's a children's book writer, you know, author and illustrator. Um, and it was a very different kind of project. Um, and so I'm, I sort of like moving between different kinds of projects um, and I'm going from something that was very light and aimed at children to something that's very serious, which is sort of the current state of the battle to sort of save our, our planet from climate uh, degradation. Mm-hmm. And so the title of the book is um, the uh, new climate war, um, mm-hmm. the fight to take back our climate, 
our, our planet <laughs> rather. And, and that's really what it's about, sort of my collective experiences on the front lines of, of that battle of the communication war and sort of the lessons that I think I've learned and what, um, you know, and, and what that has to offer us as we sort of now, as we evolve away from uh, sort of uh, challenges against the basic science. Uh, you know, old fashioned climate change denialism is on the wane. Um, it's largely uh, irrelevant. It's confined really to a fringe element at this point because the typical person understands, you know, when they read the headlines, when they watch the evening news, that something's happening. And so it's not credible anymore to claim that nothing is happening. And so instead, the sort of forces of inaction, uh, fossil fuel uh, interests, vested interests who don't want to see us move off fossil fuels um, toward renewable energy, clean energy, um, have sort of developed a whole new arsenal of weapons to block action. Um, and rather than outright denial, uh, we see deflection, deflection away from sort of uh, the, the need for systemic change, carbon pricing you know, policies, you know, to, to, to incentivize uh, the, the sort of the, the shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, a deflection to individual behavior, you know, your responsibility as a person to, you know, change your dietary uh, behavior, you know, going vegan, uh, not flying, all of these things that supposedly you and I need to do, um, shifting it away from the need for policy towards the onus being on individual behavior. And this is a classic move, um, the, you know, the, the, the same basic vested interests that we're talking about have been doing this for decades. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, and I think you're a, a somewhat younger person than I am, and you may not remember this, but in the early 70s, there was a, <clears throat> a very famous um, public service announcement, an advertisement, uh, it's called The Crying Indian. Um, and it was a Native American um, who's tearful. And you, at the end of the ad, you see the tear running down his face because of um, the people, uh, you know, throwing their litter, their litter into the rivers and uh, uh, around right. the countryside. Do you remember that by any chance? I've seen it. I've seen it referenced. I think yeah. it's a little bit before my time, but it's certainly been referenced a lot. So. Yeah. Well, it, it was it, it was quite um, <clears throat> an you know, an influence on my generation. I mean, it really had an impact. Uh, it was a striking uh, you know, uh, commercial and it really sort of embedded itself in our very soul, you know, those of us who grew up at that time. And we thought it was this great message about, you know, taking ownership, um, cleaning up pollution, cleaning up the environment. But in fact, it turns out it was a PR stunt funded by Coca-Cola and the beverage industry, uh, an advertising campaign that was hatched on Madison Avenue wow. by Madison Avenue executives working for, you know, uh, the beverage industry to shift focus away from systemic solutions like bottle bills, which would really do, but would, would, would work, would clean up you know, the bottle and can litter but would cost industry because they would be mm -hmm. responsible for the processing and, and recycling. And so they chose to spend millions of dollars instead on a massive 
PR campaign to deflect attention from the true solution, the systemic policies, bottle bills, um, and they were able to defeat the bottle bills because mm. people became convinced they weren't necessary. It was a very successful campaign. Mm. And so what do we have as a result of that? One of our other great global environmental problems, plastic pollution, global plastic pollution. And you can trace it back to industry's effort to deflect attention from sus the systemic changes that were necessary. They're using the same playbook now on climate change. They're also trying to divide the community using issues like uh, personal behavior um, to divide uh, environmentalists, to get them arguing with each other about their personal lifestyles um, rather than allowing them to focus on the real enemy, as it were, um, the polluting interests. Right. Um, despair mongering. Oh, it's mm. too late to do anything. <laughs> you can convince people that it's too late to do anything. That leads them down the very same path is outright denial, the path of inaction. And so the book is really about this array of this arsenal of new, you know, weapons that are being deployed by the forces of delay and, and, and inaction um, in an effort to prevent us from making the changes we need to make. Um, right. And, and yeah. you can tell I, 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 I'm passionate about this. And that's why I wrote the, this book, because I felt like I had something that I needed to get off my chest, um, uh, something that weighed quite a bit yeah. that I needed to get off my chest. So that made me think about how, I guess it's very easy for you know, industry to make the argument that, oh, well, this is just what the consumers want. You know, the consumers are buying this and if the consumers change, if they change their behavior, then we will respond to that. Um, yeah. And it's a very hands-off kind of approach for them. And it's a very easy argument for them them to make, but it's, it's uh, absolutely right. Yeah, um, it, it's the reasoning behind BP pushing things like uh, individual carbon uh, footprint calculators. Uh, you know, you right. can determine the the personal impact that you are having on climate change. It's about you, not about the millions of dollars we're making um, extracting and selling fossil fuels. Uh, it's a classic argument, right? Um, that hey. We're just giving the consumer what they want. When in, in reality, consumer choice um, is very much based on policies. If you level the playing field, if you make clean energy, you know, as inexpensive as fossil fuel energy is, um, then people have shown, you know, polling is very clear. People prefer clean energy. They love the idea of clean energy. Um, we just have to give them a fair choice. Am I wrong in thinking that Right now in the States, certainly that fossil fuel is actually subsidized, it's actually heavily subsidized. So its price is not a reflection of the, <laughs> you know, there the you are. demand, yeah. There so you are. One of these sources of energy is doing damage to the planet. The, the other isn't. Um, so uh, there is a, 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 a cost, there's a damage being done by fossil fuels, which should, have, should be, you know, the playing field should be such that, um, you know, that, 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 that renewable energy um, is favored. Um, mm -hmm. If you internalize the damage that burning of fossil fuels was doing to the planet um, through carbon pricing, through uh, renewable, uh, um, you know, if you internalize uh, the, the damage that fossil fuels are doing um, to uh, the planet, uh, the burning of fossil fuels, the damage that carbon emissions are doing through climate change and its impacts, um, then 
it's clear that renewable energy is the preferable choice. Um, but instead, we have this perverted incentive structure where we're actually subsidizing, as you allude to, the fossil fuel industry. And, 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 and it's being done in various ways. Um, uh, cheap leases, for example, um, uh, policies that uh, actually subsidize uh, heating oil for, uh, you know, for um, lower income. There are all sorts of things that are very cleverly built into our policy infrastructure that are incentives for fossil fuel energy. And we know why they're there, because the fossil fuel industry has been very effective at electing politicians, uh, mostly on one side of the political spectrum, the Republican Party today is really the, the party that is directly connected to the fossil fuel industry and to climate change denial. They've been very successful in electing and putting in place politicians, including currently a president, um, who favors their interests over the interests of the people that they're supposed to be representing. Right, yeah. And there's, of course, lots of different directions we could go down in terms of, you know, what should people do about this? But I think what I want to talk about, because a lot of our listeners are researchers themselves, yeah. they might be wondering to what extent do they want to engage with the political side of, of, of climate change science like where their science butts up against the kind of political realities that it has to interact with. It would be interesting to hear a couple of things from you about, um, let me frame it this way first. I think this is subjective that there's been kind of a culture shift over the last 10 years or so. I feel like about 10 years ago, the kind of standard that everyone sort of had in their head was like, well, if you're a scientist, try not to get involved with the politics because that will damage your credibility. That will damage your perceived objectivity. But I think there's been a shift towards a recognition that no scientists are citizens too. And this is something you've talked about in various uh, articles here and there that scientists are citizens too. And they are allowed to not only voice their opinion, but they're allowed to say, well, here are the implications of the science that I study. Yeah. Um, has there been a culture shift like that? Is it getting more normalized, do you think? I think there has been. I think there are a number of reasons for it, but there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, one of them uh, is generational. Um, we have a generation of people who have grown up in the world of social media, mm-hmm. and it's a very natural extension of their, their identity to communicate to the broader world. Uh, and we've sort of... Um, there's no longer, uh, there are no longer the same sorts of obstacles that used to exist. Um, you, you can get your message out um, through Twitter, Facebook, um, blogs, what have you. Uh, there, there are no longer the same sorts of impediments. Um, you know, the, the, in a sense, um, sort of the gatekeepers you know, the, the media used to be sort of this gatekeeper of, you know, our ability to communicate with the public, and, and, and they, that's largely disappeared. Um, I think a number of other things. I think it's part of just um, the sort of generate, you know, Gen Z, um, you know, people who are coming of age or have come of age over the last decade or so. Um, there is sort of a change in outlook, I think, a sense that, um, you know, that our world is at threat. Uh, and that we need to take some ownership in this battle to preserve, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the 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 planet, if you will, um, and uh, human civilization, viable, thriving, 
um, you know, uh, human civilization. It requires all of us um, taking ownership of solving all of the problems that we face today. And there are many of them. And climate change is just one of them. So I think it, it, it has not, it has to do not only with the fact that the sort of the younger generation is very adept um, at social media and using videos um, and, you know, and communicating <clears throat> in a very, you know, broad multimedia uh, manner, but um, that also is just sort of the outlook um, that I sense among uh, youth today. And certainly the youth climate movement testifies to, to that, the fact that you've got school children now striking from school to raise awareness about this existential threat to their future. Uh, I, you know, and so when I was sort of coming of age scientifically, um, my, some of my heroes were people like Carl Sagan. Uh, Carl Sagan was a great scientist, but he was perhaps the premier science communicator of, of our generation. Um, and Sagan was actually, um, uh, ostracized by some of his colleagues. He was penalized in a sense. Um, scientists who, as you allude to, felt like, hey, it's not the role of scientists to venture into the public realm, let alone talk about policy. I mean, that, you know, the, 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 that was sort of anathema um, to sort of the culture of science, the idea that you might express opinions about the implications of science for matters of policy, especially when those matters of policy become political. And then you're seen as politicizing the science. Well, um, you know, as my good friend Bill Nye likes to say, science is political, but it's not partisan. Um, you know, the science does imply the need for policies, for example, if, if you accept, and I think most of us accept the notion that we shouldn't degrade this planet for children and grandchildren, then we have to act on climate. And acting on climate does require intervention. Um, there's no question about that. And the role of the scientist, I think, at the very least, is to inform that larger sort of public discourse over uh, the implications of the science for, for policy. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times back in 2014 entitled, uh, If You See Something, Say Something. And it's basically about that, how if we, you know, as scientists, um, if we withdraw from the public discourse, we leave a vacuum that will be filled by the voices of those who do have an ax to grind, uh, the special interests who don't have the larger interest of the public in mind. Um, and so I you know, personally don't think that we should require that every scientist um, be trained in, in, in science communication um, and engage in science communication. Uh, I would highly encourage that. I think scientists, all scientists should have that option. If they feel inclined, uh, if they have a proclivity and an interest in communicating, and many do, um, then we need to provide the resources to help them do that. We need not to penalize them. Uh, Carl Sagan, because he was seen as a popularizer and because of his efforts to speak to the public and to weigh in on matters of policy, particularly things like nuclear winter um, in the mid-1980s, um, he, uh, in the end, was blackballed from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, hmm. despite the fact he had made fundamental scientific contributions on, on problems as fundamental as the, uh, early, the, the young faint earth paradox, how we can explain the climate, the relatively moderate climate of the planet, um, 
three and a half billion years ago when the sun was 30% less bright. And, and if you do the straight calculation, the planet should have been frozen at that time. And it wasn't. And we now understand it's because there was um, a, a very strong greenhouse effect at that time. And Sagan was the one who really recognized the problem and, and proposed some of the initial solutions to it. And it's sort of in the first chapter of every introductory textbook on Earth system history. Oh, wow. How can such a fundamental contribution not have met merited uh, being in the National Academy of Sciences? And so that sent a signal, I think, to other scientists at the time that, you know, if you two go down that road, recognize that you will be closing off certain opportunities. You will be, you know, it will have negative, um, a negative impact on the perception of your peers, of the quality of your science and your um, sort of merit as a scientist. Uh, I, like I said, um, Sagan was a real hero of mine. Um, I, I was, um, uh, I, I, I was, um, you know, uh, humbled um, uh, a couple months ago uh, when I was, I was, um, uh, I was um, uh, selected uh, to be in the National Academy of Sciences, and to me, it was. It was a reaffirmation of the um, of, of what you've just said that we have shifted, we have changed in the way that we view science outreach. Um, someone like Sagan was ostracized, was penalized by being blackballed from the National Academy. I'm obviously very outspoken, um, and and I speak to matters of, of policy and and politics. Uh, and it didn't prevent me from uh, getting into the National Academy, which to me is a statement of how far we've come now. And I think it's generational. I think it's yeah. largely due to younger scientists who embrace the notion that, hey, you know, it's an abrogation of our responsibility if we don't inform the discussion uh, about the implications of the very work that we're doing. Hmm. Do you have suggestions for researchers who might be interested in getting more active in terms of outreach and even yeah. engaging with the policy side of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, there are a lot of us out there, a lot of more senior scientists. Um, I benefited greatly from scientists. Uh, I had never met Carl Sagan. He passed away before I had that opportunity. But Steve Schneider, who was another real hero of mine, a great scientist and a great uh, science communicator. Um, uh, ben Santer, a close friend of mine. There were other climate scientists who had ventured into that arena and were there to provide me you know, a mentorship um, when I found myself, and, and I took a somewhat unusual path uh, into the fray, if you will, because of an article that we published more than two decades ago that uh, presented the original hockey stick curve, and it right. became this icon in the climate change debate and a lightning rod for climate change deniers. And I found myself under attack, uh, heated, no pun intended, attacks from politicians and fossil fuel lobbyists and uh, right-wing uh, ed uh, editorials. Um, and crazy. yeah, it's not, scientific uh, training doesn't prepare you for that, right? No. And it's certainly <laughs> not nothing in your scientific background can prepare you for that. Um, uh, it's a trial by fire. Uh, and, 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 and I had to go through that, but I had other scientists like Steve and Ben who had been there before and could provide me help. Um, and that was really important to me. And now that I, I I've come to terms with the fact that I'm no longer, uh, an early career or even mid career, uh, researcher, I'm sort of moving into that more sort of senior, uh, 
sort of scientist domain. And, and because of that, I feel like one of the most important things I can do, and, and I spend a fair amount of time and effort doing it, is, is um, helping other scientists who are interested in getting into this space or who find themselves under attack. Uh, I helped uh, found the uh, Climate Science Legal Defense Fund mm. to provide um, resources. Originally, it was to help me out in my own battles, but now that exists to help many other scientists who find themselves uh, sort of being attacked um, and uh, without the resources uh, and the knowledge of how to respond. And so we, we now have this infrastructure, and I'm proud of having played some part in creating that infrastructure. And, um, and, and I enjoy being in a position now to sort of to help mentor younger scientists who are coming up now and finding themselves in, in this space. Um, in fact, next spring, for the first time, I'll be teaching a brand new course on uh, climate communication for our undergraduates and graduate students. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, it's a real passion of mine now. Uh, as I said, I sort of didn't choose to go in this direction and, 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 and to some extent it led me away from, you know, I would have had more time to do the thing that I, I love doing most, which is doing science. Um, but I, there are no regrets because I feel like, um, you know, this being in a position to influence the larger conversation over the, you know, what we could argue is the greatest challenge we face uh, societally is a privilege. And I feel privileged to be in that position. And I feel privileged to help other scientists who are interested in that. And there is this infrastructure. I talked about the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund, but every meeting, if you go to a AAAS meeting or an American Geophysical Union meeting or American Meteorological, um, there are multiple sessions now um, and, and workshops uh, on not just climate communication, but sort of um, uh, how to sort of participate in the public sphere as a scientist and, and how to deal with the challenges um, and, and the constraints. Uh, and, and so it's a luxury now that if you're a graduate student and you go to one of these meetings, there are a lot of great science sessions and, you know, and, and, and you'll want to go to those too, but there are workshops and, and, and sessions on the very thing that we're talking about here, science communication um, and sort of the challenges um, uh, against, um, you know, that, that scientists face, scientists in the public sphere, and how to be a scientist in the public sphere. Right. To, to pick something specific on those lines, I'd like to hear you, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about how do you view uh, Twitter specifically, you know, as an outreach tool? Um, what are, how do you use that tool responsibly? You know, what is, cause you, you have a lot of followers, so you have some power there. So, yeah. you know, you have to be mindful of how you use that power and the yeah. way that, you know, it can be used to, uh, to boost people up or, or otherwise. So what, what are your thoughts on like how to yeah. use that responsibly and, uh, in, in a manner that is kind of positive or that gets you where, where you think it needs to go? Yeah, it's a, great, to go. it's a great question, and I wish I had a definitive answer because mm -hmm. it's a it's a moving target, and and we're always learning. Um, you know, it's uh, these platforms are evolving. Um, they're evolving the way they're used, um, and the challenges that one faces in, in communicating with that platform. And so, like I said, it's sort of a it's a it's a moving target, and and we just have to sort of do the best we can in in in, in finding ways to be. Um, effective and constructive in, in a medium that often 
now it seems is almost designed to be um, divisive um, and to create conflict. And, and we know that there are bad actors out there, um, state interests, uh, there, you know, there, there, there have been plenty of articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times over the past few years about how Russia and is, is deploying armies of bots and trolls that are there to get Americans fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just want us fighting with each other because if we're fighting with each other, then we're not focused on sort of the common, you know, challenges um, that we face and, uh, and we're not working together to, to confront those challenges. So it can be very frustrating to recognize that no matter what you do, you're, you're communicating in a medium that in some ways is being gamed for conflict um, and you can't avoid it because even if you say something that seems pretty anodyne, pretty, uh, uh, you know, uh, uncontroversial, um, there'll be somebody out there who will express outrage <laughs> over it. And, you know, they can, there are some, you know, I said they're bad state actors, but they're individuals out there who perhaps think that they can sort of create a profile for themselves, a platform for themselves by attacking and calling out others. And, and we know this call out culture, cancel culture. There are lots of terms for this right now. Um, there is a really, I think, uncomfortable atmosphere right now um, on Twitter in particular. In part, like I said, there are bad actors who are creating conflict. What they do is they seed the conflict. Once they seed it, they get other people going. And they, 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 and pretty soon it's sort of uh, self-fulfilling, it's self-sustaining. And uh, what, one thing that I've learned, and, and it, it, not to say that um, I've, I, I've, I've, I've made all the right decisions, um, but uh, something that I'm increasingly learning is to try to steer away from conflict to the extent you can, um, because you get drawn down into it and you can accidentally end up elevating some of the, the voices of, uh, again, of, um, of discontent. Um, um, those, again, who thrive on creating conflict uh, among others, who elevate their own platform and profile by doing that. But again, you know, bad state actors who recognize that one way to block action on climate is to get progressives, because you know, conservatives, re- relatively few of them are going to be firmly on board. Um, action on climate is going to come about mostly because of an alliance of progressives and some moderate conservatives. And, and, and we're gonna have to meet in the middle somehow to find common policies, carbon pricing, you know, incentives, renewables, things that, that where there's a coalition that can agree on a path forward. Um, I, I worry that some of the more, at the sort of progressive end of the spectrum, um, some of the more radical visions of a Green New Deal, I don't think have any chance of passing any sort of Congress that we're likely to see over the next uh, four to eight years. Mm. And so there needs to be some degree of concession of meeting in the middle. And we can't you know, and, and I think we need to be talking to moderate conservatives, especially a lot of them who are alienated by what their party has become. There's a real opportunity to come together. And one of the things that's blocking that 
is efforts, again, by bad actors to actually divide progressives, to get them arguing with each other, oh, you eat meat, so how can you possibly say you care about climate change? Or you, you're a scientist and you fly to conferences, you're a hypocrite, how can you? Getting us butting heads, arguing with each other so that we can't speak with one voice, we can't form these coalitions, to me, that's a real challenge right now. I can't say I have the answer, but I see that as a principal challenge and one I'm trying to navigate in, in the way that I use social media. And in Twitter, um, one other thing that's worth uh, pointing out is that you know some of us, you know, I'm very focused on the issue of climate um, and the path forward on climate. But invariably, there are other issues that come before us that uh, draw our attention, that rightfully uh, demand our attention and uh, and our voice um, when it comes to issues like you know racial injustice. And over the last month or so, we we, we obviously you know we, we saw we've seen racial injustice be you know uh, has 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 become so visible to 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 the world that those of us who care about an equitable equitable and and, and just uh, world, how can we not weigh in on this matter? And so to me, the challenge is to, to weigh in on these matters because I think it's important as a human being, not necessarily as a scientist, but to somehow find some balance between continuing to sort of promote the, the message that I'm trying to promote on climate and to not allow that to be completely overtaken by all of the other things that we are wrestling with right now and to find some sort of balance and, and to do that in a social media environment that's fraught because there are people who are trying to divide us, trying to get us arguing with each other. And, and I do think, you know, as President uh, Obama, you know, spoke out on this, um, I guess about a year ago, and I think he's right. I think there is a threat of sort of cancel culture um, and call out culture uh, gone awry to the point where we're literally um, scavenging, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, we, 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 we are uh, literally consuming um, our, our, our uh, you know. Uh, like looking for reasons to uh, go after someone or the smallest, the, it's, the, it's kind of the perfect, it becomes the enemy the, of the good sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's right. And that we're, we're sort of, um, you know, that, that we basically um, spend so much time undermining uh, the voices of our, our, our fellow climate advocates. Um, uh, it, we undermine each other and we argue uh, with each other um, uh, to the point where it just sort of uh, descends into chaos and the beneficiary is are the fossil fuel interests who realize that all they need, they don't need to really win the argument. They can't win the argument because they're on the wrong side. Hmm. They just need to prevent the other side from, from speaking effectively, for ha uh, prevent them from having uh, one clear voice demanding action. I want to get you out of here on time. So I'll just ask one more question. And I often ask a series of these questions about what have you learned about X? What have you learned about Y? So for you, since we only have a couple minutes, I'll just say, what have you learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with science? Like what's something that you have learned over your involvement with it? And that's an open uh, question, but you know, feel free to pick either science or you know, the engagement of the science politically or whatever seems appealing for you. 
Yeah, there are a lot of directions we could take that. We could have a, a long conversation about any of them. Um, I suppose I, I, you know, we've talked a lot about politics and, and I want to, you know, I would talk a little bit about sort of my identity as a scientist and, and, and sort of um, what what drives me as a scientist. Um, and, 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 and something that I learned by becoming a scientist that I wouldn't have anticipated before I became one, which is um, that, you know, the, the role of creativity of sort of the uh, left brain uh, as well as the right brain or yeah. the right brain as well as the left brain, um, you know, that, uh, you know, part of science, of course, is math and, 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 uh, you know, and, and sort of mathematical and uh, spatial thinking. Uh, but there's such an important role for, for creativity, thinking about a problem in a new way, in a different yes. way. All of the great developments, with perhaps some exceptions, but I would say most of the great developments in science have come about from somebody thinking about the problem in a new way. Um, and it's sort of funny, right? Because the, the climate change deniers like to say, oh, these scientists, they just agree with each other so that they can keep the funding coming in. Um, it's like, no, the way you get in head, uh, head in science isn't by agreeing with anyone else. That doesn't get you articles in Nature and Science. And no. It's by finding something new, finding something that doesn't quite fit, something that gets yeah. us to think about things in a different way. And so, you know, I, 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 um, I really enjoy music. I, I play the piano. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, and I think that my, so there's sort of an artistic component to my identity that I think actually meshes with the scientific component of my identity. Um, because creativity, I think, is a really important part of science. And I think traditionally we've sort of undervalued and understated the role that that plays. And, and I think part of this revolution we were talking about before and how scientists think about themselves and the role of scientists, I think, involves rethinking sort of how, what are, you know, what does it take to be a scientist and, and to do good science and, and there, are, there is a tendency now um, for interventions and activities and workshops that are really actually about creativity, improv, scientists learning to do yeah. improv. Yeah. Um, it's about being creative. It's about opening your mind. And so to me, that is the biggest surprise, what a creative endeavor science is and, and how important it is to, um, you know, to, to be creative in the way you go about doing science. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good answer. And it's something that a lot of scientists have said on this show before, you know, that that's a big part of their experience as well. well it may you mean know. it's wrong because, you know, as I said before, <laughs> great <laughs> discoveries have been when, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Stop being so creative, scientists. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I think, I think it is important. I think there's a, mm. a wide recognition of that and, and that's a good thing. You know, I think there are a lot of things going on right now. The emphasis on diversity is part of that, isn't it? Right. Yes, because one of the ways you you become creative as 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 a um, as a profession um, writ large is by involving a more diverse array of voices, people with different backgrounds and uh, different perspectives. And I think that that is contributing very much to you know what I like to think is the the progress that science is making. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to build those networks and to make sure when you're building those networks to try to make them as inclusive as possible and as representative as possible. That's, that's critical. And provide incentives for people who might not have all the usual opportunities to, to get into science. Um, you know, we have to be creative in how we think about bringing, bringing new folks in. Absolutely. Again, the role of creativity, right? Yeah. Thanks very much for your time, uh, Mike. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a great conversation. Happy to come back and, and do it again sometime. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, let's let's stay in touch. Take care. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Professor Michael Mann. So if you want to find him on Twitter, again, that's at Michael E. Mann or via his website, michaelmann.net. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. You can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad that you were here. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation. I've got uh, several more episodes already kind of in the can, so to speak. The conversations are recorded. I just need to produce them and get them out there. So I've got a lot more coming. For better or for worse, I said that I would start sharing a personal thing at the end of these podcasts. So my personal thing that I'm going to share is sometimes I forget that people don't always like compliments, that sometimes compliments make people uncomfortable. And I have to keep reminding myself that uh, not everybody necessarily wants to be showered with positive attention all the time. It can make them feel uh, a little off kilter. It can make them feel like maybe they're too in the spotlight. So uh, if I've given you a compliment and made you feel uncomfortable, I apologize. And I will try to be more mindful about that in the future. It's, um, It's somewhat of a counterintuitive one, but I guess if you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, in a way. But anyway, I'm going to ask for permission before I give compliments. I think that's what I need to do. Okay, so take care of yourselves. Stay well. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.